Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. My guest today is Anne Cutler, and we're talking about her book, Native Listening, in which she provides a fascinating overview of much recent work on speech perception, and argues the case that, in some sense, languages train their native speakers, or native listeners, to process them in a particular way. In this interview, we discuss some of the critical findings, and also talk about how we can use language-specific results to inform our understanding of the human language faculty in general. And I learn, among other things, why we need child language labs in Morocco, and what kind of language experience is available in utero for humans, and indeed for sheep. I'm delighted to welcome Anne Cutler to talk about her book, Native Listening, in which she discusses the many aspects of processing that go into our understanding of language as hearers, and what they tell us about cognition. Anne, this book draws upon a wealth of research, much of which is your own, along with colleagues. How did it come together? Well, you know, why do you write a book? There are, there are always multiple reasons. I mean, first, first of all, there is no other book like it. There's, there's no other book on on uh, spoken word recognition. Uh, spoken word recognition. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a small field, you know. It's, it's, it's and it's a relatively new field, but um, it's it's extremely active. It's been extremely active in in, uh, in recent years, and there's a huge amount of of, of work. But there had been no book, no, no no book on it, and. Also, most people who do spoken word recognition um, in the laboratory come from uh, originally from psychology, and they're fascinated and in, by and interested in language, but they don't necessarily have a linguistic background. And so, the, um, the main message of the book that the way we listen to speech is is at every point. Um, determined uh, in some way by the, the native language we grew up with, that's, that's a message I really wanted to get across to the whole um, spoken word recognition and um, uh, wider psycholinguistic community. So <clears throat> I wanted people to be able to to see the influence of the, of the native language in the the actual process of, of of listening to speech, which we do do every day, and uh, as I, and as I said, there was no there was no book, and it was kind of um, I was about to retire, and um, uh, it seemed like a, a very good time to to um, sum up what I've been doing for the for the last few decades and put put it all together because I had a I had a very coherent picture by that time. Yeah, and I think that coherence is very much reflected in the book. As you say, you make the point very emphatically throughout the book and right from the beginning that the native language is essential, and for that reason that cross-linguistic study of language is essential, because although the human capabilities may not differ, speakers of different languages certainly differ in the abilities they actually make use of. Is this something you feel is often underappreciated? Oh, absolutely. Now, um, let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, in in all of the... um, Speech perception textbooks, you'll read that transitional cues from a vowel into a, um, a consonant uh, are very important for the perception of uh, F, you know, but not so important for the perception of S, 
sound because, and the, the uh, traditional account is that um, S sounds are uh, more strident and have more uh, clear, salient acoustic information, and so you don't need to listen to the subtle cues in the, uh, the in the vowel preceding them. And um, uh, S is a weaker sound, and you do need to listen to the to the uh, the subtle cues. But then along came my student Anita Wagner. And um, uh, she happens to be a native speaker of um, uh, both German and Polish, but in particular uh, uh, for Polish, she thought uh, this is this is really not going to work. I, I have to tell you that if you have a gut feeling about what does and doesn't work, that's the best way to start off a off a, a scientific career. Anyway, she um, she tested this and found that um, uh, the only experiments had been done in English before and. Um, and she got the same result for English, and but when she tried it in Dutch and German, she didn't get that result because uh, in, in Dutch and German uh, and in Italian, nobody um, was paying attention to the cues in the vowel for either S or F. Uh, but then she got the same English result when she tested in Spanish. So she was doing all this cross-linguistic research, and she was finding, okay, you get... The, the textbook result for English and you get it for Spanish, but you don't get it for Dutch, German, or Italian. So what do English and Spanish have? This was Castilian Spanish, incidentally. What do they have that the, those other three languages don't have? Well, well the sound for the theta, you know, as in thin versus fin, right? And th is so like th, you can see that in, in any perceptual confusion study that you do, that it's... Um, and the necessity in your language for having to distinguish the sound f from a very similar sound that leads to that result. And you don't have to distinguish s uh, from any similar sound in any of those languages, English, Spanish, Dutch, German, or Italian. But of course you do in Polish. And so when she did the experiments in Polish, which has uh, several dental frig frigatives like s, um, she found exactly the opposite result. So the point is that in, she tested across um, altogether all six different languages. And in those six languages, the cues in the signal, the acoustic information in the signal is basically the same. You know, if you're, if you're, uh, if you grew up, uh, speaking Spanish or Polish, uh, your, the shape of your mouth is going to be exactly the same, you know, similar for all, all of these languages. It's, um, um, your mouth, the shape of your mouth doesn't, doesn't determine what language you speak. And so the, uh, cues that you make in a vowel before, before your mouth moves to making a s or a s are going to be exactly the same across all of these languages. They're all there in the signal. But the point is, it's your language that determines whether it's important for you to use those cues, right? And there are, there are loads of examples of this just all the way, all the way through the, the book, not just at, at the phoneme level, but for instance, uh, the, the recurring story throughout the, throughout the book of, of uh, um, lexical stress. So in, in lexical stress languages, you know, um, there are very clear cues in the, um, in the signal uh, which distinguish stressed syllables from unstressed syllables and different levels of stress, so primary versus secondary stress. You know, it's all there in the signal, but, but um, it so happens that for English, the 
uh, distribution of vowels across stressed versus unstressed syllables is such that unstressed syllables tend very much to be reduced. So for English listeners, it's important to pay attention to stress in the sense that we distinguish a full vowel from a reduced vowel, but we don't really have to go into the gradations of stress for, for, for English. But in other languages, you do. So that compare Dutch with, um, uh, with English, for instance. So Dutch is a... Um, uh, very closely related language to English. They're very similar. Loads and loads of cognate pairs. Now you take um, a word like cigar in um, in uh, English. Now the first syllable is going to be reduced. It's s cigar, right? And you have exactly the same uh, word in um, in Dutch, but it's cigar, right? So the first syllable is not reduced. It's secondary stress. And um, uh, you can take um, uh, cobra, you know, cobra, the, the snake. So, so, so that's it. the second syllable in um, in English is is reduced. It's it's just a schwa, and exactly the same word occurs in in Dutch, except you pronounce it cobra, you know. And um, and the first syllable is has primary stress, and the second syllable has secondary stress, and the four vowels not it's not schwa, and so. All of those cognates in, in Dutch are not reduced to the same extent that they are in, in, in English, which means, of course, that, that, that um, and, and this, this pattern goes throughout the Dutch vocabulary, you have loads and loads of syllables that are unstressed but still have reduced vowels, and um, uh, that, that don't have reduced vowels, sorry, still have full vowels. And so for Dutch listeners growing up speaking their language, they have to, um, they have to learn to pay attention to to um, uh, gradations of stress uh, in order to recognize words quickly in a way that English listeners simply don't have to do. This has um, uh, both a, uh, a good side and a bad side for both uh, listener groups, obviously. So, so a, a, a nice little uh, win for, for Dutch listeners to English is so that they can actually perceive levels of stress in uh, in English better than than um, um, English native listeners can. That's um, that's uh, all described in, in great detail in in the book, and that should help them, you know, a little bit in in uh, in understanding um, spoken spoken English. Uh, English listeners don't uh, need to do that. Um, if you put them in an experiment where they have to. They have to listen to stress in order to 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 make a decision about a, um, uh, a syllable that's been excised from its content uh, context. They're they're actually extraordinarily bad at doing it, you know. But um, that's because they they really don't have to have to learn this. And um, in work that isn't in the book, we've just uh, been running an enormous um, speech perception experiment. Um, um, with um, identifying all the phonemes of English. Uh, from fragments, and um, and what and we already did that for Dutch, and what we find is that the um, um, there's a stress effect in the in the English data that is actually much larger than um, in the um, in the Dutch data, and that's because as soon as a a vowel is unstressed in English, the English listener is expected to be reduced, and they don't really pay attention to the to the vowel quality. They're actually quite bad at at um, um, identifying uh, unstressed vowels 
in English in in a way that um, the Dutch never were in the in the in the parallel Dutch experiment. So so again, you see, no matter how you look at it, that there there are uh, uh, good sides and bad sides to to um, all of all of these differences. But just about every level of the um, spoken word recognition process, you can find some effect that um, is acoustically universal across across all the languages that that um, have stress or have uh, S and F, for, in, for instance, the effect in, in the acoustics is the same, but the use you make of it is... Um, um, is so the uh, story would be that if we were to study just one language, for example English, we would uh, be able to identify certain universal properties, but we would miss out completely on others. I guess that means it's going to be quite hard to come up with a full inventory of all the of all the capabilities that might be used in certain languages. How close do you feel we we can get to that? Well, I think that um, um, phonologists have been doing a lot of <clears throat> the basic work that we, that we that we need. We know what the interesting the possible patterns are across languages. We don't have to te we don't have to go and and test every experiment in every language in the world, you know, because because um, you can imagine that, that if, um, if a language has, for instance, lexical stress, then you look at how it works in that language and you should, you should be able to predict what aspects of it will, um, will be used in, in, in spoken word recognition by listeners. And if a language has um, particular phoning inventories, um, it's going to be exactly the same. You can you can predict that uh, any language with and 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 foot and foot will have will show the same pattern as as um, English and Spanish, for instance. For instance, and any language like like Polish will will show the same pattern. You don't have to go and do the experiments in in all of those. And I'm sure that that there are quite a lot of nice undergraduate projects that could result if you did. And, and, and so it goes, it goes on with um, the populations of, of possible phonological structures are, uh, I think, uh, not um, um, not a mystery to us any any anymore. I think I think uh, the uh, phonologists have been uh, extremely uh, well occupied over over many centuries to to um, um, let us know what what possibilities we're dealing with. Maybe there are some surprises we've had with, um, for instance, the double articulations in some of the Pacific Rim languages. But um, uh, <clears throat> nevertheless, I, th I think that the, it's not going to be the case that there, there are uh, huge phonological differences out there that, that um, are going to change the picture. But um, you suggest at various points that, that maybe in the area of prosody, the landscape isn't quite so well understood. Would that be fair? I think that's true. Yes, I think it's um, um, it's a, it's an enormous growth area, and I think this is this is definitely going to change. But um, there's so much work to be done, uh, especially in the subtle um, interplay of prosodic structures across across languages and the uh, the possibilities of of um, misuse of of, of um, your native language prosodic expectations in listening to a second language, for instance. There's been very little work on that. There's, there's, uh, I think stress has been has attracted quite uh, both lexical stress and sentence stress. I think is, have, have had um, a fair number of experiments done across across languages, but. 
sentence prosody and uh, other prosodic systems such as pitch accents and so on, they're, they're well understood in, in, um, in uh, native processing, but uh, there's still an awful lot of work to do in, in second language processing. Sure. Um, to return to the linear order of the book, um, in chapter two, you discuss the nature of spoken language and in particular the theoretical difficulty, at least, of identifying words in the speech stream, given the prevalence of so many embedded words there. Um, this yeah. is something we're really not you're normally aware of in native listening, are we? No, uh, humans aren't. aren't. I, I can tell you where, where people do become aware of it, and that's when they try and speak to a computer. <clears throat> because um, uh, you, you, you can talk to a computer and, and, and only in, in those systems that are completely constrained where you're only allowed to say uh, words from a, from a certain vocabulary, you know. Uh, but if you try and talk to, to, talk to, your, to your mobile phone or you, do, um, you start to use, to use a uh, dictation system or something and then you see what it comes up with, uh, especially while you're training it first, You'll, you'll very quickly see that it comes up with uh, words that were actually uh, well supported by the signal, but you had no idea that they were there. You know, so so actually playing with a new dictation system will um, will um, uh, quickly give you an insight into that. It's, it's, and it doesn't matter what language you're speaking because um, every language has exactly the same problem, which which causes this, namely namely a relatively small phoneme set of only a few dozen phonemes, sound, speech sounds, and um, and a huge vocabulary of words that you build out of them, you know, so it's inevitable that, that, that words are very, very like one another, and uh, any long word is extremely likely to have um, have shorter words embedded within it, and in fact, the, um, the, the fewer phonemes your language has, the longer your, your words tend to be, and the more embedding you, 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 you tend, to, tend to have, so so, um, even, but, but you know, even if you have a lot of, of phonemes, like your native language, British English, has has you know is is, is really wildly profligate in having in having uh, over forty phonemes. You know, that's a, that's an awful lot because the average, or the the modal number, the most common recurring num number of phonemes across languages is twenty five, Chris. So so you know, uh, forty six or whatever British English has. That's that that's. That's really, really been been quite quite profligate, but nevertheless, of course, it, it, 46 is, is also not enough to um, to um, do anything uh, practical about the embedding problem. It's going to happen everywhere. Um, that's another thing we've been um, um, looking at um, uh, since the book uh, came out, and this uh, this is also not in not in the book, but but something that's um, in all the literature is um, again that there tend to be more words embedded at the beginnings of longer words than at the ends. And that's important because it, it, um, um, it has, a, um, has implications for exactly um, what competitors you're, you're, you're um, comparing um, uh, and rejecting um, at any particular point while you're listening to, um, to, to, to speech. And, and so there's, there's been a lot of work done on, on, this, on this very fact that, um, that, you, that you're, um, you spend more time getting rid of um, competitors for the beginnings of words than, than, uh, than for the end, ends of words. But it turns out that that's not true across languages either. And in Japanese, for instance, it's almost um, exactly the same in um, um, uh, word initial and word final posi position. So, 
So, um, and it turns out that um, uh, it's it's merely an artifact of um, well, two things tend to to skew where words are are embedded. So, if you have um, um, a lot of suffixes, then the ends of words are unlikely to be uh, standalone words by themselves. The last syllable, for for instance, is going to be a, be a suffix. Well, Japanese doesn't have suffixes, so so that's one big explanation. But also stress has has a um, um, a separate uh, contribution, and um, uh, and especially in a, in a language where you have a lot of um, vowel reduction, like um, like English, and um, and German even more so. And each of those two two uh, factors separately um, contributes, so that um, the asymmetry between the beginnings and ends of words as to where. Uh, words, shorter words are embedded in longer ones, is um, much greater in the Germanic languages than in French, which does not have stress but does have um, uh, suffixes, and greater in French again than in Japanese, which has neither. So um, again, you see that that the task, the listener's task, is subtly affected by the um, um, morphological and prosodic patterns of, uh, of the native language so that, so that the, the kinds of competition that you're getting rid of when listening to Japanese speech is slightly differently arranged from the competition uh, patterns in European languages. You were discussing in the following chapter how we can go about modelling uh, this competition, and in particular you give a sort of historical overview of computational models of word activation, historically on through the through to the Bayesian shortlist B model of Norris and McQueen. Um, it seems that you're, you're very keen to emphasise the usefulness of this of this cycle of experimentation and simulation. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's. Um uh, it's something we're we're still doing. So that so that um, um, I think I, I I may even have forecast in the in in the book that uh, a shortlist B version for English, which will be available for everybody to to uh, do Bayesian simulations of their spoken word recognition experiments in English, will be coming soon. And uh, and I already referred to the large speech experiment we were doing, where we got where we got a unexpected um, unexpectedly large stress effect for for English that English people are very bad at at um, um, recognizing stress uh, un, unstressed but full vowels um, shouldn't have been a surprise to us but uh, um, uh, the effect was quite substantial and uh, that experiment has just been been completed and uh, and that is becoming the the, um, the, uh, the new front end to to an english version of shortlist b so yes this is all of this is still going on and it's extremely important to us because um, it it just gets your 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 um your research and and your theorizing um moving together in in progressing um at the in, in in concert, you know, so so that, for instance, I also describe in, I guess, um, uh, chapter five of the book, the possible word constraint, where this is this turns out to be a major effect in in um, in listening to speech, where where you um, you have all these these words being activated that that are there in the speech signal just briefly, and you have to find the right ones that the speaker actually said and get. Um, and discard all these these um, um, 
uh, spurious competitors that are embedded words or overlapping words or partially supported words. And um, one of the things you do is that if a, um, a word is activated that is embedded in another word, but it leaves something over that couldn't possibly be a word because it only um, consists of a, cons uh, a consonant. For instance, if you give the word bring, uh, then room will be activated, but, um, but it, it would leave b without anything to do. So, so you can immediately get rid of it on that basis. Now, you might think that that is, is pretty obvious, but um, uh, it, it turns out to be a very, very powerful and, and rapid um, effect in um, um, in in listen, listening to speech. Well, the way we discovered it was actually by running simulations with with the uh, shortlist model because because we'd been running um, um, some experiments in um, uh, in British English where uh, we found that a Word. We'll, we'll be using the word spotting task, and you have to you listen to a to a nonsense word, and you have to find the word that's embedded in it. And um, mostly, that's that's pretty easy. So, for instance, we one of the examples that we that we uh, we used was um, uh, uh, jump in in, um, and we would give people jump move, and they had to they had to find that there was jump in it, and that's quite hard because because of um, English because English listeners are uh, very prone to segment speech at the onset of um, stressed syllables, or any full syllable, which is likely to be a word onset in English. And um, so jump of is, is harder to find jump in than jump of. Now, jump of was very easy, and that's what we predicted. Uh, but in British English, jump of actually has two words embedded in it. And that's a no-no for a word spotting task. You should only have one word that the, that the uh, subject in your experiment can possibly find. And in fact, nobody ever found anything, and probably no listener at the moment is, is finding anything except jump and jump of. And, um, uh, but in fact, the word jumper, which this is British English, right? So there's no er at the end of that. It's jumper. It's an item of clothing. And uh, jumper is uh, is a very common word, and it's in jumper. But no, uh, none of the, none of us who are running the experiment had ever noticed that, and none of the um, subjects ever in this experiment came up with jumper. So, um, so what was going on? Because because it's there, and the model immediately found it, right? But but the point is that if you've got jumper in jumper, then the only thing that's left over is the. And, that's, and that fails the possible word constraint. So immediately, jumper is, um, is ruled out, and you, and, you can, and you can find jump, right? And um, uh, when we realized that the model was actually doing something very, very sensible, we started to, um, uh, to think, well, hey, this is quite a powerful constraint, so let's test it in experiments. But the, we didn't think of the experiments until the model had given us that, that idea. So, um, and then the model, of course, had to be given the possible word constraints so that it, it behaved like uh, like listeners, and then it became, behaved even even more accurately as a result. So, um, it's it's a kind of a, an, an interplay between between modeling what you've got and seeing that if you have that model, then what predictions does it does it make next? Testing them 
and finding out the, the results of experiments which will then improve the model and then make the, and then the model can make even better predictions and, and so it goes on. So yes, it, um, it surely helps you get much faster uh, ahead in, um, in uh, modeling your, your chosen area of psychology. And the uh, possible word constraint is another one of these um, observations that does mod modulate slightly across different languages, as you discussed. Oh, yes, oh, that was such a saga. Yes, we. I mean, we've spent we've spent uh, nearly twenty years working 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 on this because uh, I mean the, I I won't do the whole chapter on the, on it in the book because because of all the different languages that we have to test various things in because because you know you can say okay. Um, couldn't be a couldn't be a syllable, but it couldn't be a, a word of the language, or couldn't be a word of the language. But of course, there are some words in um, that that are just just a um, a single syllable, or, or you can reduce um, uh, words to a to a single to a single um, uh, single sound that is a, that is actually consonantal, mm, for instance. But that doesn't stop. The operation of the of the possible those word reduction phenomena don't don't um, stop the operation of the the um, possible word constraint and uh, and nor it seems to do uh, the kind of uh, reduction of surface syllables where there's an underlying vowel is in is in Japanese vowel devoicing or or uh, some of the um, uh, Portuguese. Uh, consonantal sequences where where there's an underlying vowel that's written, but uh, it doesn't uh, it doesn't surface in in what you say. But still, in all these languages, we found that the uh, possible word constraint was just exactly the same. But uh, the really crucial test case was a language um, which would allow any standalone open class word noun noun verb adjective anything to have um, uh, no vowel in it, have um, consonantal uh, syllabic nuclei. And um, there are a few such languages in the world. Phonologists, again, have been uh, wonderful in, in, um, in uh, falling with great glee on these languages and, and uh, writing an awful lot about them. So, so um, we know about the languages of, uh, of um, the Northwest Pacific Coast in, in uh, like Spokane and Bellacoola, they have that property. Um, there are some some languages in in Georgia and in in, um, in, uh, in, South, in, uh, in the Balkan states that have that have that property. But the main and best documented uh, language family with um, uh, uh, standalone words that consist only of consonants is Berber, the Berber family of languages. And um, and so we actually did these word spotting experiments in um, in both Tashotik and Tarafik Berber. And uh, and in there, the only languages in all of the, the dozens of languages that the possible word constraint has been tested in, uh, both these Berber dialects, no trace of it, no trace of it. So what we don't know, of course, is um, is whether infant Berber speakers actually develop a possible word constraint and then have to lose it when they've got a when they realise that their vocabulary doesn't encourage it, because. Um, and there are arguments for that, or or whether um, uh, they never develop it in the first place. Now, the the arguments for developing the, the possible word constraint are that we we think it's probably extremely primitive and easy for for infants to develop. Infants do show it, by the way, and when they're 
but we've only tested the English acquiring infants. It, 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 it's very easy to see that, that speech consists of, of a class of sounds that are vocalic and a class of sounds that are consonantal and, and that they, um, they differ in, in how they're distributed across, uh, across, across speech. And that's something that, a, that an infant can tune into very, very quickly. And there's also evidence that in Berber, um, baby talk uh, to Berber infants uh, has more vowels in it than, than the adult language has. So, so uh, we don't know the answer to this. So let's hope that that um, um, some days uh, there'll be a uh, a baby lab somewhere in in uh, one of the uh, universities in in Morocco, and somebody will test this out. But, uh, but as as of yet, we don't know the answer to that. But we do know that adult verbal speakers do not show the uh, possible word constraint because you know it wouldn't it wouldn't help them it would hinder uh, listening to Berber if you applied it so of course they don't so um, again that's just exactly what um, what you would predict by the fact that you do what your language requires you to do when listening to speech indeed yes um, turning back to the models briefly we, we discussed in passing um, the shortlist and shortlist B models of uh, word activation. Uh, the impression I have is that you consider these particularly uh, apposite in various ways. Uh, what, is, there, is there something in particular that, uh, that distinguishes these, that makes them particularly attractive or promising? Well, um, the useful thing for us um, in um, um, using shortlist is that it runs on, on a real dictionary so that you can um, you can simulate your Experimental results in that model with with something like the um, the real vocabulary that that your your participants in your experiments have brought in, into the lab with them. Most of the earlier models were either not computational or had uh, much much smaller dictionaries, so that you would have to. Uh, run an experiment on just a, sim- a, 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 a small set of words, or or specifically add a word to the dictionary, but then you wouldn't know what competitors to add to it. It, it enables us to to just quickly run a run a simulation of our experimental results without and just assume that all the all the words that are that uh, are playing a role are, are there in in the dictionary, and that's. Um, that's a very very handy computational feature. That's that's the main reason why why um, why we use that 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 model. Of course, my student, my very first graduate student and long long time time dear colleague Dennis Norris created the model, but uh, he deliberately created it to have this this um, uh, this property and and um, and uh, that may, that makes it extremely useful. Yep. Um, much later in the book, you discuss the question of uh, bottom, bottom-up versus top-down or bidirectional models. Um, you state a preference, but you also opine very even-handedly that the question really can't be settled yet for all sorts of reasons. Do you think it will be? And, and if so, how do you think it will be? Ah, that is a good question. Um, I think that there are ways in which um, every point every position in the in this um, uh, in this debate has has um, 
uh, a positive side to it, right? So, so uh, I and my colleagues have have tried to argue the um, traditional Occam's razor uh, approach that that you don't add elements to your model unless you're absolutely forced to because um, because the more complicated the model gets the more um, unexpected properties it can it can uh, turn out to have as a result if you have top-down uh, flow of information then what it does is it constrains um, the possibilities at an earlier processing level so that means that some things that you might have Gun become impossible, right? Now that is what we want to avoid because um, you can, for instance, with uh, top-down flow of information, then induce hallucinations. You know, you can expectation can be so strong. So if I say a stitch in time saves, and then uh, I might want to say me, you know, um, and the idea would be that if you have strong top-down flow of information, the only thing you can hear at that point is the word nine, a stitch in time says nine, right? And um, and so you would hear me as nine. Well, of course, you don't want to do that, do you? So so uh, you do not want to allow um, a strong top-down flow, flow of, uh, of information actually ruling out possibilities at, um, at an earlier level. So um, now that's a... Well, that's an exaggerated um, case, but um, that's what you want to to avoid. And um, uh, you can explain how odd a stitch in time saves me um, sounds by by uh, allowing the same effect to happen at at, um, at uh, a later level when you're integrating the the, 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 the word me into this context. And you say, "Ah, that sounds really that wasn't what I, what, uh, what I was expecting." So, but you did uh, successfully perceive it, and that's that's what we we always do in the in the case of puns. You you laugh because it wasn't what you were what you were expecting. Somebody said said uh, uh, something quite uh, uh, clever and uh, related to what you were expecting, but uh, not exactly what you were expecting. But you notice it immediately, and you notice it um, because you didn't overrule. The, um, um, the lower level processing from your expectations. Nevertheless, the um, the, um, the experiments that have, have been done to understand exactly how context uh, effects work are getting more and more elaborate and um, intricate. Um, especially especially um, brain imaging experiments now are particularly interested in this um, um, in this topic, and um, I think. We will just just like we've always had um, um, philosophical positions in in different uh, on different different topics that have gone on lasting forever. We will we will probably um, be able to debate this um, uh, this issue for quite a long time to come. In uh, in chapter eight, you you cover the emergence of language specificity in development, and the, there's some really mm -hmm. fascinating work here. As well as probably yeah, book on that, yeah, easily, easily. and uh, yeah. a completely, I think, unique subsection title to eight point one: what fetal sheep might extract from the input. <laughs> yes, uh, because you discussed the the familiar observation that children lose the ability to detect certain contrasts as they mature, but there's a lot more going on here, isn't there? 
There, there, there is, and, and some, some of that happened before birth, and that was the um, uh, rationale for the for the fetal sheep uh, project. Because um, it turns out that um, if you're looking for another organism that has a has a similar gestation time and a similar fetal growth period and a um, that is cycle and um, and uh, a similar amount of of um, bodily material between the auditory uh, apparatus of the of the of the fetus in the womb and the outside world, then then the sheep is about as close as you can get to the human. And um, this uh, this group in Florida did a whole lot of nice work recording in um, uh, placing little little uh, microphones in inside um, the the womb of sheep and recording what could be heard from from people talking and and um, and so on in the outside world and it's actually a remarkably large amount uh, and we know that that the infant's brain and um, and uh, auditory apparatus is uh, pretty well developed in the last trimester of of, of um, um, the mother's pregnancy and um, and so the for those last three months, the infant is actually hearing a lot in the womb. Of course, mothers know that because they know that uh, that infants respond differently um, in the womb to to different outside um, sounds like vacuum cleaners and versus pianos and so on. And um, and in fact, all the experiments show that that um, when an infant is is born. At birth, that is within within the, the the first hours of birth, they know that they you can show that they they uh, recognise the mother's voice and they recognise the maternal language, and um, um, they distinguish it from well not from very very similar languages. So they they get they would for instance get Dutch and English hopelessly mixed up, but they um, um, they certainly know that if they're learning Dutch or English, that it is not Japanese and it's not 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 Italian. They have completely different different kinds of, of of patterns, and they certainly prefer to listen to um, the maternal language pattern. So um, all of that is happening in the in the womb, which is why the the um, uh, experiments on sheep have actually taught us something about the about what the uh, infant can hear. Indeed, yeah. Um, you construe this in terms of, of languages training their speakers or, or rather their listeners. Uh, and in the concluding chapters of the book, you discuss some of the implications of that for second language learning. Uh, mm -hmm. It's my impression that you wouldn't really endorse the idea of a critical period per se, but you would rather explain a sort of uh, gradient effect of losing the ability to acquire language in terms of these uh, these well-motivated specializations to the, uh, to the native language. Is that fair? Um, yes, that, that, that's that's um, uh, that's exactly right. Um, what's um, quite interesting is the um, the convergence across different areas of um, of linguistics in this um, this notion, actually, because um, um, I was recently at a symposium in honor of Bill Lebov, who just uh, uh, the great social linguist who who um, who got the Franklin Medal for Science uh, this year, only the second linguist after Chomsky to receive this this uh, great medal. And um, and at that symposium, there was some discussion of um, uh, what's the tipping point for um, a phonological merger in um, uh, language change. So, so Bill Lebov has has done a lot of work on um, mergers across across vowel categories, for for, in, for instance. So, what happens 
that actually tips it so that a variety uh, moves from one set of categories to another. And and it seems to be infants being being born and 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 only being exposed to the merged variety. That as long as there are people around who have the set of categories pre-merger, then you haven't got a, you haven't got a full change. Now that means that you've got here um, a dialectal uh, and language change phenomenon, which is addressing the same issues as I'm talking about in terms of um, different languages and acquiring a, um, a second language. So what basically mean it, it, what it basically means is that once you've got a set of categories as a um, as an infant it's it's quite difficult to to for instance expand that set of categories and that's the, so that's the hardest thing to do in phonetic perception for instance if your um native language doesn't have um uh, the distinction between r and l and right and light then you know it's really hard to acquire that um uh, that perceptual distinction. So, so it seems it seems that um, we can adjust the boundaries between categories to change vowels, um, um, for instance, slightly uh, across across our lifetime without noticing it. We can adjust to speakers without without noticing it because that's just adjusting exactly how you interpret a particular set of of categories, but changing the set of categories is a real tipping point, and um, and that's true in second language, and it's true in language change. Uh, so I'd like to conclude, if I may, by by asking about your own research plans. You mentioned, on the one hand, uh, retirement, but uh, from from all you've said about the many strands of work that you are continuing to pursue with colleagues, that seems to be rather a rather a technical use of that term. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm actually working at my other job. The, the, the um, uh, European uh, universities and, and research institutions have um, uh, European retirement ages. You know, you just have to retire at a certain age and you don't get your salary after that age in, in Europe. But that's not true in America and it's not true in Australia either. And, um, and so many years ago, I started setting up a lab in Sydney and um, um, gradually moving. So I was working part-time in Sydney and part-time in Nijmegen for the last six years that I was, I was in Nijmegen. And, um, and when, I, when my retirement age actually came, uh, came to pass in January this year, I formally retired in, in, um, uh, from the Max Planck Institute and, um, um, and I'm now only in my other job. But my other job is just, uh, just a research professorship in Sydney and, uh, and I just keep on doing what I'm doing. What do you uh, see as the particularly promising avenues of research in general in this field? I mean, there are so many, and we talked about several, but uh... yes, there are there are many, and and I must say that um, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of writing the book is how it, it focuses you on um, uh, how I'm sure it's the case for everybody who writes such a book. Um, it focuses one on on the um, unanswered questions. So I have I have a fuller research agenda now than 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 I could have imagined a few a few years ago. I'm particularly interested in um, in tracking down um the various forms of native language advantage, you know. So why is it for instance that when you you speak a second language very well, 
um, and you're absolutely just fine in your second language uh, one-on-one, um, and then you go down to the pub or the cafe or the bar with your, your mates and there's a whole lot of background noise and music and lots of people talking at once and, and suddenly your, your uh, one-on-one uh, fluent, uh, fluency in listening, your ability to understand everything, absolutely everything, has just completely disappeared, you know, and, and, and the compensation that you can do in your native language, you don't seem to master in your in, in your second language. And people report that even after like 20, 30 years in, in um, um, speaking a second language. So what is, the, what is the actual underlying mechanism that, that gives the native language a, a, an advantage in, in listening in noise in, in, um, in that kind of situation? What is the mechanism also that gives the native language an advantage in, in um, recognizing and identifying talkers so that when when you for instance are listening to to um, an, an unfamiliar talker have you have you heard them before or, or, or not it's much easier to make that decision um, in your native language and forensic scientists know that very well that if if people don't speak a language very well they're not very good at, at uh, identifying whether whether um, um, a particular talker is somebody they 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 heard, for instance, plotting a robbery or whatever. Um, and um, so, so voice recognition. What is the advantage? What is the actual source of the native language advantage in voice recognition? We know it's not actually being able to understand what's going on because um, infants can do it. So, so we discovered that at seven months, you know, infants at seven months don't understand anything, but they can tell us uh, a uh, when uh, you've added. A new speaker to a set of um, so you have a set of three speakers saying things. You add a fourth speaker, they'll notice it immediately um, if they're speaking the native language. But if they're speaking some other language, they won't even notice. So, uh, what is the the um, underlying, presumably phonological processing that's um, advantaging the um, the native language in in that case? And what about um, um, uh, spotting dialects, for for instance, you know, people can spot um, dialects and say, oh, you know, you're from Yorkshire, or um, um, or in America, you're from Alabama, or, but um, but uh, um, it's not so good in um, another variety of your own native language, and it's pretty hopeless in your second language. You know, after 20 years in the in the Netherlands, I still couldn't uh, immediately say you're from the Hague or you're from Groningen. I couldn't do that. So, what is the the actual mechanism underlying the um, uh, the uh, native language advantage in in um, um, in distinguishing between varieties? So, all of these ways in which the native language has a has an advantage, I would like to these these are these you know these are not fully understood now, and that's what I would like to um, understand in the next few years. It does sound like an extraordinary challenge, and I wish you every success with it. Um, For the moment, let me just say, Anne Cutler, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, Chris. I've been talking to Anne Cutler about her book, Native Listening. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.